freshly elected officials will be sworn into office across the country. As the calendar flips to January, a great deal of legislative business is about to begin. We're going to break it all down on this episode of the Rural Perspectives podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Adam Albrick, and today we're welcoming back Howard Olson, who serves as the Senior Vice President, Government and Public Affairs at Egg Country Farm Credit Services. Welcome, Howard. Hey, good morning, Adam. So How's there, everything with you today? Well, it's it's crazy day, um, and it has been pretty crazy in our political system for the last couple months, and of course, going forward. So, uh, I, you know, there's there's big news out of Washington when we woke up this morning that there's more COVID relief aid on the way, and maybe that's where we'll just start it off here today. Yeah, certainly. You know, there's been uh, some information out on the on the bigger pieces of this. It's hard yet to find much detail on uh, on what might be uh, specifically for agriculture and our farmers. But but we do know that they'll have a direct payment to everyone at $600 per person and, and including per child in the family. Some additional unemployment benefits of $300 a week. A couple of items that, that come in uh, to play for, I think, our folks uh, and our farmers in in the area is that there it will be an additional round of the paycheck protection program loan program the ppp and with there could be some carve out or something different for farmers in there i haven't seen the details on that we'll have to just watch for that i'm pretty sure that there's a simplified forgiveness process for the first round for loans of $150,000 or less. So some benefits with that. Um, One thing that we've heard that will be in there, and of course we need to caveat this, Adam, with the fact that this still needs to pass both the House and the Senate and be signed by the President, but they think they have a deal. But it sounds like now that they're going to take these, any expenses that are paid with the PPP funds will be tax deductible. At first, the Treasury Department had said they would not be, but they've changed their minds on that and put it into this bill that anything, uh, expenses paid with that first round of PPP funds will be tax deductible. We know there's another $13 billion roughly in another type of a CFAP uh, sort of a payment to farmers. Again, details are sketchy yet at this point. And uh, $400 million for a new dairy donation program that would reimburse processors for the cost of donated products. Some $60 million in grants for small meat processors so that they can qualify for federal inspections and uh, sell products across state lines. So, So there's a lot of lot of detail into this big, big package of both COVID relief and the omnibus funding bill, and a lot of details yet to come out on it. But I think some good things for agriculture, the way it sounds. And of course, this is attached to a continuing resolution. And for those who are not super politically inclined, that's ultimately the budget that uh, the operating budget that Congress and the president uses to keep the lights on in Washington, D.C. and across the country. So, of course, government shutdowns are not very popular. So passing this continuing resolution and covid relief is a pretty high priority at this point. Oh, absolutely. An interesting fact here, this session of Congress started with the longest government shutdown in the history of the country. So <laughs> they just about ended with the with another government shutdown, but looks like they, they're going to get it done. And that brings us into, I guess, some of the political results from our, our November election, which now with January, as I said earlier, to start this program off, they're all being sworn into a new term. And with that comes a new presidential administration. Joe Biden has received officially 306 electoral college votes, which, of course, exceeds the 270 threshold to win. So we have a new administration coming in here, Howard. 
Right. And uh, this will be official on uh, January 6th. Congress will the next joint session of Congress will meet to count the electoral votes and they will declare the results. And then, of course, on January 20th, both the vice president and the president will be sworn into office and they try and time this so that the president is sworn in at noon Eastern time. Uh, So um, many changes to come, I think, uh, in the next four years for for us. And we'll we'll see what happens. We can talk about that a little bit more here. Yeah. And what's interesting is I know, you know, the Republicans may have lost the presidency or the White House, but overall, looking at Election Day down ballot, they actually had a pretty successful day. They took back several seats in the House. Not, of course, uh, enough for them to take back the majority. And uh, so far, they're clinging to a two seat majority in the Senate. There are runoffs in Georgia, which could potentially expand their lead or even that out. Right. The Georgia election is an interesting one. We don't see this up in our part of the area, but both in Georgia and in Louisiana, to win the election, you must have a majority of the votes, more than 50 percent of the of the votes. And if there's more than two people on a ballot, well, it gets a little bit difficult to do that. And that's what's happened in Georgia with both Senate seats. And so they move into a runoff election. And with the top two vote getters from the first election uh, being the only ones on the ballot, uh, so that we we know now one of them will receive more than 50% of the votes. It's just a question of who is it going to be. And it sounds like it's pretty close between the Republicans and the Democrats. If the, either one of the Republicans win, then the Republicans would retain the majority in the Senate. If both of the Democrat candidates won their Senate election seats in Georgia, then there'd be a 50-50 split in the Senate. And of course, then the tie-breaking vote would go to Vice President Kamala Harris. And so it'd be considered that the Democrats would have a majority um, in that situation, but it's very slim. There is an incoming new administration. Joe Biden has started to announce some of the people and the candidates he plans to put forward for different cabinet positions. And some people feel that you can tell what an administration's priorities are going to be depending on the types of people that they put into these secretary positions. In agriculture, it's a familiar name, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, Tom Vilsack will be will be or should be back as the Secretary of Agriculture. He, of course, needs to be confirmed by the Senate. Uh, but uh, Tom Vilsack served as the Ag Secretary during the Obama administration, the full eight years of the Obama administration. So he brings lots of experience into that role. Uh, I believe, you know, from everything that I've heard, and, and I've met him a few times, uh, but I, I think he's a, a pretty good administrator. Uh, USDA is one of the largest agencies in uh, the federal government, and so it's it, um, a challenge to run. Uh, I think it's interesting. There was a, you know, there was a lot of talk about North Dakota's uh, former Senator Heitkamp as a possibility for that Secretary of Ag position. Also Representative Marsha Fudge from Ohio. And instead of going with either one of those, he went back to uh, Tom Vilsack. So interesting. And I think overall that'll be a good move for agriculture. And also just coming into, we, we talked just a little bit ago about how close some of these margins are and, and in terms of the majorities. Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, U.S. Senator, has been talked about for filling various cabinet positions. But the tricky part, I guess, for both Klobuchar and Biden is if the Democrats do win those two seats 
in Georgia, they're going to need Amy Klobuchar in Washington, D.C. to serve as a U.S. senator because that would, of course, take away some of their majority and they need those votes to get in the Biden administration. So it's kind of a, an interesting right. way to go about it and, and to calculate it right now. So uh, just, to, is. just to recap, of course, that just highlights how important those two seats are in Georgia. Yeah, yes, it really does. There was some talk of Senator Klobuchar as uh, being someone for the, you know, the attorney general. Um, if that were to happen, there's a whole chain of events that would occur in, in Minnesota in the legislature. But, you know, I think you're right in that. I kind of doubt that President-elect Biden will pull any Democrats from the Senate just because of that narrow majority or possibility, but just the how closely divided they are in the Senate right now. I think he'll won't pull any Democrats out of the Senate to fill a cabinet position. Just a guess, but I think they want to keep as many in there as they can. And then it is important to note that in Minnesota rules state, the governor gets to appoint somebody to fill the remainder of that term. Of course, the governor is Democrat Tim Wall, so that seat would stay as a likely Democrat seat. However, could it be replaced in time for the nominations and and the the votes on on those positions? That's kind of what the big question mark is, right? And so the the appointment the governor makes is uh, an interim just until the next general election, and then that that uh, individual or someone would be elected to complete the rest of the senator senator klobuchar's term so the governor has got a little control for a while but then it's back to the people and again just to fulfill that term and then there's another election so you could look back at the senator smith uh, and i think this is how it worked out for her and and um she had what was it adam two elections in her Correct. first yep. four years i think um you know so it's normally a six-year term for a senator Right. And and so with the new administration and new leadership across the board, including in the House Egg Committee with the defeat of longtime Congressman Peterson, you know, that's going to bring in a new wave of potentially ideas or different focuses. I think it's pretty well accepted within the egg community that climate change is going to be a rather large focus of this incoming administration. And a new farm bill is also set to get written in the time that Joe Biden will be in office in his first term. Howard, what else are you kind of hearing around uh, in terms of priorities that will take place in in Washington D.C. that could impact agriculture? Right, I think there's I think there's two things that are really jumping out from um, the president-elect Biden's uh, nominations to the cabinet, and and one is diversity, diversity and inclusion, and and that's big. Um, but, but the other is definitely climate, and a lot of people that are focused on climate and climate change. There's been a lot of discussion already uh, around the impact that agriculture can make to climate change. And uh, there's uh, bills in both the House and the Senate that authorize or give some authority to USDA to start managing some of this. And farmers would be able to benefit from the sale of carbon credits uh, and USDA being the bank on it. You know, so it'd be interesting to see where this goes and, and what happens, but we know that climate change is going to be a big thing and we know that uh, agriculture is going to have uh, an impact on it. 
I've shared at a couple of different conferences and seminars that I presented at, Adam, that I think back over the years and, and when something big like this comes at agriculture and, and big change, we have a tendency to dig in our heels. And we, I mean the agriculture industry and farmers, and, and I've, I've grew up on a farm and been around agriculture my whole life, but we, we want to push back against change and ends up that it's inevitable. It's going to happen anyway. And so I think this climate change, we have a decision we could make here as an industry, and that is to to, to fight uh, and push back against it or jump on board uh, this wave and try and direct it in a in a direction that, that works to our favor and, and is beneficial to farmers and agriculture and to the to the overall uh, population and environment. So kind of a decision that we'll be need to make. There is a group of egg leaders of egg industry that have put together a proposal and recommendations and suggestions, and it involves the uh, American Farm Bureau and the National Farmers Union and the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives and the Environmental Defense Fund. And I, other ag groups are getting on board with this as well. And, and I think it's going to be something to watch uh, and see where this goes. But again, we have a choice. We can push back against it or we can jump on board and kind of direct it in a, in a way that's beneficial to everyone. Well, we will continue, of course, to keep the audience posted as we progress throughout this administration and as time goes by. But let's take a, a quick look at now the states. Of course, we serve Minnesota, North Dakota, and Wisconsin, and it is uh, all three of those states will be in session this year. It is going to be an odd number in terms of the, the year in all three states, in which means it's going to be a budget year in all three states. So, Howard, how about we we take a look at Minnesota? Looking at the down-ballot races, Republicans gained a few seats in the House, but again, not enough to take the majority, much like the national level. And they're clinging, much like the national level, to also a very thin margin in the Senate. So that creates some interesting dynamics in the upcoming Minnesota legislative session. Right, it sure does. Um, the the uh, Republicans still have just a one-seat majority in the Senate right now, so it will be interesting. You know, one of the thoughts about this, Adam, is that as uh, and especially on the on the national level, but I think we'll see it in the states too. The majority is so close and so slim in both the Senate and the House, both in the state of Minnesota and at the federal level, that we may see more centrism, more movement towards the middle, more compromise perhaps a little bit more bipartisan legislation than what we have seen in the last four years, because it's it's the only way they're going to get things done. Again, it's going to be interesting to scenario to see what happens. But uh, we do have some new faces, uh, some, some uh, new people to meet and get to know. In the Minnesota House, our Ag Committee Chairwoman, Jean Poppy, was uh, defeated in her re-election bid. And uh, our new House Ag Committee Chairman is Mike Sundin from ESCO, Minnesota. Mike grew up on a dairy farm in Kuchichin County, so is familiar with agriculture. And uh, we think uh, overall would be a pretty good choice there for leadership in the House Ag Committee. On the Senate side, a familiar face there, Senator Tory Westrom from Elbow Lake will continue on the Senate Ag Policy and Finance Committee. And uh, Tory's a strong advocate and supporter of agriculture and, and knows us well. He's from our area in, uh, in western Minnesota. So that's a good move. One interesting note about the Minnesota Senate is that there was two longtime Democrats that actually became independents after the election results came about. And announced that they're actually going to caucus with the Republicans. 
So uh, just it's just another interesting angle to this whole thing. But of course, they come from very rural, very um, union focused on the iron range or towards the iron range. So, yeah, just a lot of interesting angles here in the Minnesota legislature. Exactly. And I think for all of our states, you had mentioned the budget, but of course, another big thing and and the primary focus right now for all three states is going to be to to get through the COVID pandemic and what can they be doing to help out the people in each of the states. In the last special session in Minnesota, the, the legislature passed a $260 million relief package for businesses. Uh, that were affected by this most recent shutdown. There's a grant programs for bars and restaurants and others that had to shut down. Some money that's funded, funneled back to um, counties and so on as well. Uh, but again, the COVID relief and, and getting through the COVID pandemic and taking care of the people is going to be a top issue for each of them. The budget in Minnesota will be one, of course, and a bit of a surprise. We had thought that with the pandemic and with the, all of the costs associated with it, that we would have a huge budget deficit this year in Minnesota. It turns out that there is just a, a bit of a surplus. And looking forward into the next biennium, um, a small budget deficit, about $1.27 billion. <laughs> That's, Yeah, it's small. A lot of money there. But, uh, but still, the House and Senate leaders have said that that is manageable. Uh, so so some good news on that side, and, and we'll see what can happen. Taking a look to uh, the neighbors to the uh, west there in North Dakota. Now, it, it's not a divided government there. Republicans actually made a few more gains this past election. Take us through what happened on election night and, and where the focus is going to be with their legislative session. Sure. Governor Burgum was easily reelected to the position as governor. And on the federal level, Congressman Kelly Armstrong was easily reelected to the U.S. House. As you mentioned, the Republicans did pick up a few more seats in the House and the Senate. The North Dakota legislature just meets every other year. So it's always a budget year in the North Dakota legislature. The um, budget this year, I guess, you know, of the three states, North Dakota seems to be the least contentious. There, there just doesn't seem to be the issues there that we have in Minnesota and Wisconsin. And maybe it is because it's a supermajority of Republicans in both the House and the Senate. And uh, there's a whole lot of them that are farmers and, and come from farms or closely tied to agriculture. Uh, so maybe that's why they, if they just work together a little better, but not a lot of big issues. The budget will be one this year. The state, uh, the governor is pro- proposing that the state actually issue bonds to be used for uh, infrastructure projects, the roads and bridges, a lot of work that needs to be done. We've had some conversation with some of the senators and representatives, and I think they're mostly in favor of that. They just want to be sure that we're not paying for general fund type of projects, like maintenance uh, type of projects with bonding. you know, if a road has a has a five-year life expectancy on it, and should you uh, be issuing a 20-year bond or taking out a 20-year loan to pay for that five-year lifespan project? So those are the things that they want to watch out for and, and be careful of. But the bonding and the budget, infrastructure, roads and bridges is a big one in North Dakota. That seems pretty clear cut. How about we hop over to Wisconsin now where it's a little bit more contentious. However, there there is divided government in terms of the governorship versus the rest of the legislature. But within the legislature, it's still pretty Republican controlled. 
Yes, it certainly is. And uh, but the Governor Evers, of course, is a Democrat. And we've got a Republican Assembly and a Republican Senate over there. Does seem to be a, some some uh, conflict between the two from time to time, I guess, as as our listeners are well aware. But just a quick election recap on the federal level, all of the uh, incumbents uh, are holding their office. They all won their reelections. Congressman Kind uh, from District 3 uh, won by a very close race. And of course, that'll be up again in two years. And and I think everyone in that district will want to keep a close eye on that. We have a new person, and that's in the 5th District, which is an area between Milwaukee and Madison. Jim Sensenbrenner retired from there, and uh, Republican Scott Fitzgerald was elected to that seat by a pretty good margin. And um, Representative Fitzgerald is not a new name to politics at all. He's served in the Wisconsin State Senate since 1995 and was the state Senate Majority Leader. So uh, it should be a good representative for Wisconsin out of that 5th District. Let's just take a peek here then at some of the upcoming legislative priorities and, and how they shake up. Again, budget year, coronavirus. Anything else that's kind of really standing out to the egg community, Howard? You know, we had a good meeting a couple of weeks ago with our Wisconsin, our Farm Credit uh, Wisconsin Legislative Committee and our lobbyists there and walked through some things. And, and I think a couple of areas particularly important to agriculture we want to see more state meat processing infrastructure. I think the the, the COVID issue in the meat processing facilities across uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin uh, really brought to light uh, how, how important they are and how close they are to not being able to continue and taking taking hogs and, and poultry and beef and so on from of our farmers. Um, so they'd like to increase that the capability of the state meat processors and perhaps even provide or find a way for them to be able to sell their product across state lines, you know, get that federal inspection and, and go across state lines with their products. So that'll be important. There's funding for existing programs that we want to see reauthorized, the non-point source pollution cost share program and uh, producer-led watershed grant programs are both important to continue to keep funding the dairy export program how do we continue to move more of our dairy products out of the state and then of course the environment and and so on is always a uh, an issue in in all of our states but the governor is working on some nitrogen application rules development and uh, that'll be something to, to watch closely too and and be sure that they're that they're fair and and uh, not too challenging and I think one thing that kind of stands out to me is I was funding for higher education, whether it's at the University of Minnesota, North Dakota State University, or the University of Wisconsin. These are all land-grant colleges, and they do play a pretty big impact or have a pretty big impact on agricultural education and the research that comes out. So it's always interesting when budget years happen to see uh, what type of funds are flowing to those land-grant universities. Yes, it is. It's always a, a fight for those. They they need that funding from the state. And we want funding for ag research as well. And uh, there's a big project in North Dakota with the agriculture products um, facility at, at NDSU that, that replaces Harris Hall. That'll be a big one that, that we'll want to see get funded and, and created and built. But the ag funding for the land grants, you're exactly right. And, and again, research too is a big one. Absolutely. Well, Howard, anything else you'd like to mention here before we uh, leave our audience? It's going to be interesting to watch the next couple months as all three states are in session. 
and we have a new legislature in um, or you know a new congressional session in Washington and a new administration just a, a lot of things to watch and follow and see what happens you know I think uh, one of the things we didn't touch on Adam but is probably worth mentioning there's been a lot of concern across the agriculture industry in rural America about a Biden presidency and what that might mean for things like environment regulations and tax legislation and so on and and with our divided Congress uh, in Washington, with our closely held majority in the in the House and closely held um, in the Senate, it's going to be difficult for the president to get much legislation across. So any sweeping tax changes are going to be a challenge for him. It's probably not going to happen. We could see a little picking around the edges at, at certain pieces to try and raise a little bit more money for some of the projects and, and uh, the deficit and so on. But I don't think we have to be concerned about large tax uh, law changes. Regulatory side uh, from the agencies, especially through USDA and EPA, that one will want to watch closely and what will happen for environmental regulations and so on could be a little more pro-environment and a little less uh, friendly to industry. So we'll want to watch those closely. So, But budgets and all of this, just a lot of things to watch in the next month or two. And of course, there is always the threat of executive order. But like any previous executive orders, if it's major sweeping changes, that typically means court litigation as well. Yeah, our founding fathers, I think, did a pretty good job when drafting the Constitution and the authority of the administration and the authority of Congress and the oversight of the court system. Pretty good job to keep us from getting whipsawed back and forth on crazy changes every four years or every uh, legislative cycle. So we'll see some change, but it shouldn't rock us too hard that we can't adapt and and move forward with it. And regardless of what does come our way, we will continue to keep you posted and continue to help you understand any type of complicated issues that do pop up. Howard, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. Very good. Thank you, Adam. That is Howard Olson, Senior Vice President, Government and Public Affairs at Egg Country Farm Credit Services. That's going to do it for this episode of the Rural Perspectives Podcast, which is a production of Egg Country Farm Credit Services. To get more great content, please visit www.eggcountry.com. Hey,